Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. Our celebration of the Style Council and the Honorary Councillors continues. Today we welcome Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, producer and trombonist Ashley Slater. Not only is he the man behind Freak Power that he started with Norman Cook, aka Fatboy Slim, but Ashley played on the Style Council's single The Lodgers and the Cost of Loving LP, otherwise known as The Orange Album. So let's get into it. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, mate. It's a real pleasure. (laughs) Now, we are going to get into some interesting stuff around Mr. Weller and your involvement in an element of that. But first of all, I want to understand when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller, because I gather around the time of the jam starting was the time that you came to the UK from Canada. Would that be right? I was born in Canada and only lived there for about six months. And then we moved to California. I was born in one of the coldest places in the world. It used to be like minus 60 there in the winter. And my mum and dad decided to move to the edge of Death Valley. <laughs> Extremist behaviour I exhibit is probably accounted for by my very early formative years. <laughs> <laughs> what was the reason for coming over to England? I discovered the trombone when I was about 12. Absolutely adored it. My dad wanted me to learn trombone because he had a he wanted to start a Dixieland band and he didn't think there were any trombone players where we lived. <laughs> About six months to get myself up to speed. And bless the guy, they used to take me on gigs with two of my music teachers, Tom Habens, who taught me how to play trombone. He taught me how to play B-flat major. And then I, I took it from there. Gene Petrick, who was also the teacher at high school, who was a wonderful person. I was lucky. I was thinking about it not long because dad died, passed away last year or died, depending how you look at it. I think he died personally. You know, they used to sit with me being absolutely bloody awful on these little function gigs that they used to do and and just put up with it, smile and be encouraging. And that is really quite a beautiful thing because it did give me that love for the trombone, performing, for playing, even though I knew I was absolutely shockingly bad. Uh, But... But but it must knew, have been, at which point did you get good? <laughs> well, I don't even know if I have got oh. there yet. <laughs> We're all a work in progress. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we all have suffer a little bit from uh, imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I did really suffer from that. I did some pretty heavy jazz stuff in the 80s and early 90s with people who I'd really admired. Suddenly I was in their band and I was always thinking, I'm not really sure I'm supposed to be here. You just suck it up, baby. Suck it up. So you come over here in 77. I came in 77 because they knew, my parents knew that I really, they could tell I wanted to do music. I figured if I did music, I could get away without ever working a single day in my life. Um, and so far, that's been more or less true. <laughs> For me, work is something that you do to earn money, but you don't like very much. And I don't have to do that very much. So uh, I'm a lucky man. So, yeah, I came here. I joined the British Army um, as a musician. And I did that for six or seven years, ended up serving in Northern Ireland, which was weird. But even that turned into a, a really great experience. I, I ended up playing with uh, meeting up with a bunch of guys who were super cool. Um, we're still friends to this day. And we had we had a band playing soul covers. We were all in those days hugely inspired by the Blues Brothers. And so, yeah, we had a Blues Brothers kind of band. And I went around doing very <laughs> stuff that I really wasn't supposed to be doing in uh, Northern Ireland, like playing in places that I just shouldn't have been. And then I left the army. Uh, my bandmaster, we were shipping out to the Falkland Islands to garrison the islands after the conflict with Argentina. And my bandmaster, Colin Reeves, I've had a lot of really cool people in my life. People who've really made big differences to me, you know, and I, I remember all those people all the time. He said, if you get yourself a place at London Music College, I'll get you out. I'll just let you go. I won't have to pay because normally if you wanted to get out of the army in those days, you had to buy your way out of a contract, which you'd signed. But he said, I'll just get you out. And that, so I came down here and I auditioned for the Guildhall, who really liked me. But they said, look, you already got a job as a professional musician. You're in the army. So we're going to say no. But um, I did do a gig at Goldsmiths College uh, on a course there or studying orchestral musicianship which I really wanted to do at the time. Then I realized that being an orchestral trombone player meant being able to count to 10,000 without losing your place and then going... <laughs> and, that, and that's it. That's all yeah. you get to do. Right? Yeah. Like, ah, this ain't for me, Gav. That's not me. There are musicians who are bloody good at that sort of thing, basically being perfect. Yeah. I'd say my USP is that I'm really shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good at doing one thing, and that's being Ashley Slater. <laughs> <laughs> so the time in the army is the time of the jam. So did that pass you by completely in terms of no, no, not at all. No, I mean it was really cool because I came from California, where basically all I'd heard was country and western. And I remember having like there was this one guy, Craig Rice, who rode a motorcycle and liked Led Zeppelin, and I was like, oh my god, he's like the devil. But it was uh, really cool. I mean, I landed at a brilliant time in British music history. You know, we had Ian Jury, we had Queen, we had the Sex Pistols. You know, there was all this stuff going on. And some guys that I was in the army with were massively into prog. So they were into Genesis and Barclay James Harvest and all that kind of stuff. And then these other guys were into the punk, which I have to say I preferred the energy of. I was definitely drawn to that. I think the song that really stuck in my head was Eaton Rifles. Paul, even then, I mean, what a, he's a bloody talented guy. You know, he is a brilliant pop musician. He's had a terrific career, which completely supports my assertion. Considering how 
you know, kind of famous he is and all that sort of stuff. I mean, he's one of the world's most successful musicians. He's still approachable. And um, I remember meeting him. Freak Power was playing at Tea in the Park in Scotland back in the 90s. And he was sitting there having a chat with my manager. And we, so he kind of recognized me, remembered me, shook my hand, you know, was completely friendly. Um, and I have a feeling that if I met him out in the street tomorrow, we could have a chat about, you know, what we've been up to and all that kind of stuff. And he'd be quite friendly. And, you know, if you've ever met famous musicians, they tend to be standoffish. I mean, I'm like, I'm sort of famous. And it is always a little bit like, mm, what do you want? You know, what do you yeah. want? Although these days, I mean, I'm just happy that anyone wants to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, you bought a record 20 years ago. Uh, He's he's a bloody talent and he's a decent fella. Mm -hmm. I think when we did those sessions, his dad, he was kind of running things there and he did a great job too. You know, I think Paul would happily admit that his dad really, really helped him out, you know, focus his career and all that kind of stuff. And I know when he passed, Paul was really pretty crushed by that, of course. Mm -hmm. He was a cool guy. And those sessions were really lovely. The music, you know, the charts were written out, sat down, friendly vibe, you know, get it done. But it's it's weird when you're a session musician because you don't even really, I'm not so much anymore, but you don't really think about what you're doing. What you're doing is earning 135 quid that day. The end. I'm playing with Paul Weller or I'm doing something with this. You don't think about it. You're just like, thank God I've got work today and turn up and do your best, you know? Yeah. So this was at Solid Bond, I'm guessing, Paul's studio at the time. Was that where you were, where you recorded this session, you remember? No, I have a feeling we might have been at CBS or it was somewhere up. I don't know. I don't bloody know. Do I might. <laughs> this is September 1985. So this is post Our Favourite Shop. And the thing that's really interesting about one of the songs you play on is The Lodgers, which was on that album. But yeah. they decide for some reason, for the purposes of the single, and it actually says this on the front cover of the single, it says, a newly recorded version presented to you by public demand. <laughs> one of the reasons why I think they pre-recorded it was because this was his biggest studio entourage to date. There's a huge crew of you guys playing on this single. I think it was a five-piece brass section, at least on that record. So yeah, it was. It's that was quite big even back then, you know. Yeah, and it's the band, but with DC Lee. So the single says featuring DC Lee, and you're playing with people like Guy Parker, Chris Lawrence, and Roddy Lorimer and stuff. How did you get involved? Was it literally that they were looking for a session player, and you're on I'm the list? I'm sure somebody else that they would rather have used wasn't able to do it. So. <laughs> Come on, no. <laughs> I was um, notorious. I won't say famous. I mean, really, I went to Goldsmiths. And while I was at Goldsmiths, somebody came in to debt for somebody who couldn't make it that day. I think it was a trombone player called Richard Pywell. And he said, hey, you should come and check out this band I'm doing. That was Loose Tubes. And I did go down to the rehearsal. In those days, they didn't have a bass trombone. They were going to have, they were trying this four trombones and a tuba, which is unusual, not unheard of, but unusual. Um, and I went down there with my bass trombone and sat in for the rehearsal. At the end of it, I stood up and said, This is great, guys. I'm your new bass trombone. <laughs> and that was that. I was just like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that band captured the public imagination at the time. I ended up being the kind of the front man, as it were, just because I could stand up and talk 
in front of people without feeling weird about it. I don't, don't particularly know why. I just, that's the way it was. Um, I didn't do public speaking at high school or anything like that. I just find it very easy to be conversational with large crowds of people. So I was kind of a little bit famous. I mean, if there is such a thing as a famous trombone player, I guess I am one of those. I guess I got called just because somebody had my number. I mean, I, I was never in the A team. and There, there were trombone players who did everything, Pete Beach or Rich Edwards, those guys. And they were bloody fantastic players as well. And they still are. So, you know, I was always like, you've got your A team in London always. And funnily enough, I mean, the A team are still the A team. I was working with guys who were playing with Wham and, and you know, all those bands at the time um, in uh, a salsa band called El Sonido de Londres. You know, you just get around, don't you? It's a little scene and you get a reputation for either being able to hold your own or not. You know, I didn't go through Nigel, which is where all the big horn players went through. But I did okay, really, considering I was really a totally an outsider. So that's that. You know, you just get on somebody's list and you turn up and if you don't mess up the session, you might get called again. You were on The Lodgers, but you were also on a couple of tracks that were then recorded for the Orange album, Cost of Loving album, Walking the Night and Fairy Tales. Was that all recorded within one session? Scratching his head. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. I, I, it's got a feeling. It's not unlikely that we would have recorded three songs in one session. You know, it was all very well organised. It wasn't like, okay, you guys think of a part. It was like, whoosh, there's your part, sit down, read it, go through it once, let's record it. That's how they work. So you would get a song done in 45 minutes, something like that. Sessions were about three hours, not beyond the realms of possibility that, um, yeah, that they were all recorded within that one session. Um, I do seem to remember getting a call back, though, for Paul. So maybe I did do two separate sessions. I don't know. I don't know, right? <laughs> and can you remember anything about recording or can you remember anything about those songs? Was it something that you were no. eagerly awaiting the release of the album to see your name on the Star Council <laughs> album? <laughs> no. I mean, again, this is me. I'm weird, but I I never look back. Got people saying, oh, man, I've got a tape of a gig you did in blah, 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 blah. You want me to send it? I'm like, nah, you're good. <laughs> I was there, mate. I know how it went. <laughs> the last thing I hear is me. You know, I have to live with myself, for God's sake. I don't need to examine myself at every possible uh, thing as well. So I was never, I'm not an archivist. I don't even have a copy of anything by Freak Power here. Or, you know, I've got a couple of Loose Tubes albums just because they were reissued and they'd never been played. The cellophane's still on them. I don't, I'm always kind of surging forward, you know, looking for the next thing. Mm. That's a good life. I mean, I'm not particularly wealthy, but I'm very rich. Do you understand? You mentioned Freak Power, um, and I'd love to touch on that. So this is Norman Cook, otherwise known as Fatboy Slim these days. The true story of how Freak Power started was... I had a band signed to Ireland, which came out of me doing a season at Ronnie's. And, and uh, Rob Partridge from Antilles came up to me after a gig at Ronnie's and said, hey, what else do you do? You don't just do this, do you? I mean, what what, what, what you got in you, you know? So I said, oh, I've got this idea. At that time, there were a lot of brassy street bands emerging. That was a big thing. And I thought, cool, I really like this. I'd like to do something quite funky with a tuba as the bass instrument instead of an electric bass. So I went into the studio with my friend John Ecott, who was also from Loose Tubes, and we made four tracks. I'd never written anything before. 
before. So I just wrote these four idiot songs and gave them to Rob. And he went, how the hell does a 23-year-old guy from California sound like an 80-year-old man from the Delta? Which I've always had that, that voice, whatever that voice is. I've always had it. Anyway, Norman was between bands casting around. And he got in touch with Island and said, you got anything I can remix? And they sent him the Microgroove album. And he remixed a track on that. And then the label was like, right, you got to go have your picture taken with Norman. I felt really uncomfortable about that. I mean, partly because I was kind of marginally famous anyway. And I've been working with jazz musicians. And the whole jazz ethic is make your own way. You know, you are a salmon. You're going to swim upstream for the whole of your life and then have a baby and die. That's jazz. So <laughs> and it, I still think, by the way, you know, musicians, we, we're all wrong. We're always, we do everything wrong. We swim upstream all the time. You know, the, the current government attitude towards musicians and music says it all. It, it completely confirms what I've just told you. We are nothing to those people. And Norman Cook at this point is, is this is post House Martins, post Beats International. Yeah, he's had number he was, one singles pre Fatboy Slim. Way pre Fatboy Slim. Um, Fatboy Slim and Freak Power kind of grew up hand in hand, actually. And one thing that I am credited with was giving Norman a bit of credibility again, because, you know, after House Martins, well, of course, he had all the specky little uh, outsider students were big fans. And then he went and did Beats International, which is kind of, let's call it very loosely black music or based on black music, whereas what he'd been doing before was very much white music. Although probably if, if there was any soul in um, in the House Martins I would credit Norman with having brought that to them. So we met. It was weird because I felt weird. He thought I was weird. I was weird. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm weird. We are weird. Musicians are weird. That's why we're musicians. And we didn't hit it off, but I kept in touch. And, and one time I sent him a, a live, a tape of a live gig. The next morning, I, I got a phone call, and I actually, it's Norman. He was in his bathtub listening to this tape, and he said, that's really quite something. It's it's somewhere between Funkadelic and the Blues Brothers and the JBs. You know, it's, it's, it's great, which is kind of where we were. He said, let's do something. So what we first did was we became Beats International's backing band. It was brilliant because Microgroove was playing to biggish crowds, as the support act, and then we'd be on stage again as Beats International, which is terrific. So it was a good deal for us. And then uh, after a, maybe a year of doing that, he rang me up and said, look, come down. I've kind of got this next Beats International album half written, but I'm, I want to change it up a bit. So we went down there, and I think the first session we did, we recorded Turn On, Tune In, which, you know, as, as we all know, went on to do quite well eventually <laughs> with, the, with the intervention of Levi's. Yeah, and then that was it. You know, that was, we became Freak Power and then had five years of maybe, yeah, about five, six years of quite good times, a lot of touring, a lot of partying, uh, some recording, some, it was fun. People ask me now, do you get tired of singing Turn On Tune In? It's like, no, you wouldn't even know who I was without that song. So of course I don't get bloody tired of it. That was my ticket. So when it first came out, it, it did all right, didn't it? It was like number 29, I think, in the charts or top 40 charts. Yeah, or yeah, I always thought it was 23, but it could have been 29. But yeah, it was kind of, 
a ripple. But then a couple of years later, gets picked up for Levi's. And for people that can't remember, so Levi's had this habit of creating TV ads using either songs from the past that, that we'd all kind of forgotten, probably, or, or just undiscovered. And it was a couple of years gap. So when did you first hear of like of Levi's licensing your song for the ad? Were you involved? Did you have to give permission? Or was it more, it was more suddenly this thing explodes and you're taken um, along for the ride? We were involved. I mean, it, you know, all the ba- all the dealing of, you know, can we use your track and all that, that's called a sync. Um, can we do all that? That's all handled by whoever does that stuff at Levi's and whoever does that stuff at Island Records. You know, they said, oh, we want an edit. And in those days, doing an edit was not easy. It wasn't like, you know, I just load it into Logic now, snip, snip, there you go, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we had to do a lot of jiggery pokey with tape machines and copying this bit and, you know, bouncing it over here. And that was quite a, an intense session. But yeah, we knew it was coming. And we also knew it was good news, bad news, because... I think the biggest one before that was uh, that model taking his clothes off in the laundrette. And I heard it through the grapevine, wasn't it? Yeah. I can't remember who came first. There was Stilt Skin, which was a library track, and then they had to make a band. And then there was, <laughs> and then there was Spaceman, yeah. which they sped up uh, to make it interesting. And then there was Us, which they didn't have to do much with. They just liked the track. You know, it was starting to get, to be that if you were a track that got famous through a, Le- a band that got famous through a Levi's ad, you weren't even a band probably. You were just like some corporate thing that had been invented just to suck money out of people's pockets. But uh, we were actually a band and we've been touring quite hard already for two years. It was a blessing and a curse. And I say, I can illustrate that. We made our second album and... You know, we had a review in The Guardian which said, this is fantastic, what a quantum leap forward for this band. And <clears throat> the one in the NME which said, why did they bother? Just a fucking Levi's band. Uh, uh, you know, and that, unfortunately, I think Island Records read that review and they didn't read the one in The Guardian, so we kind of just got quietly shuffled to the bottom of the pack. I don't know how much you know about record labels, but they have priority acts. And if you're not a priority act you might as well not be signed. And we were a priority act while the Levi's thing was going on. And then after that, it was all a bit, ah, well, you didn't bother making a second record. <laughs> but we had some time making it. We were out at Compass Point in the Bahamas. Julian Palmer, our A&R man, was like, fucking rinse this, guys. So he, he approved it all, signed it all off. We ended up at Compass Point for a couple of weeks, which sounds amazing. But all it meant was that we got up and it was warm. And then we went into the studio all day and then came outside and it was warm. <laughs> <laughs> the ends. We saw it. I think we saw the sea. So there's two things I want to ask you about the, uh, the Weller connection. So one is you have this title of honorary counsellor. And I don't know if you're aware of this or if this means anything to you. or <laughs> I don't even know what it was. What is it? Where, when did this emerge? So basically, anybody who had any connection with the band, you'd have the core band, which was Paul and Mick, and then eventually yeah. expanded out, and it was DC Lee and Steve. That was the kind of core nucleus. Anybody else who had a uh, played on anything was was considered an honorary counselor. So you had people like um, Zeke Manuka, um, Helen Turner, Guy Parker, mm-hmm. Chris Lawrence, and such. And mm-hmm. you, and I don't think you get a badge or anything like this, but you are one of around a hundred honorary counselors. I'd like a check. <laughs> Who's running this? Team, I need to apply for a grant. <laughs> that would be lovely. Um, Maybe so I get one room in Paul's mansion and just move into. That. 
So it is a badge of honor that somewhere. Um, and then the second thing I was going to ask you is, um, have you have you had any connection or any links with Paul since? Was is, was there anything as post those sessions? No, I give the guy everything and I never hear from him again. <laughs> no, although, like I say, I'm sure if I bumped into them somewhere, we would have a pleasant, very pleasant conversation. Not like I did that one session and then got a job at Tesco. You know, I'm still out here. I've got three freaking records out today, all with different acts. Um, so I'm very much, I'm in some sort of game. I can't say I'm in the game. Um, I'm not Ariana Grande, but I am, you know, I'm doing what I've always done, which is making music. And that's what I will do until I die. And you're fairly self-sufficient in the sense that lockdown hasn't impacted too badly apart from the live stuff and we'll touch on that in a sec but from a recording yeah, I mean, point of view you can do pretty much everything remotely oh totally it's kicked me in the wallet big time but um like i say it's only money i mean the more i earn the more tax i have to pay so i'm cool with not earning much <laughs> i've seen some of my really good friends melting during this period especially people you know touring musicians which thankfully i never really got into unless it was my own band i never wanted to be that guy standing at the back i'm the guy who stands at the front do you know what i mean that's all there is to it i've got a massive ego get over it but i can back it up with some ability so it's you know and i do struggle being a side man you know i've been blessed and i've had the opportunity to be a front man in several projects now um and the last one was kitten in the hip i've got a new thing which i've written and Produced with a, a girl down here called Hattie Snooks, um, believe it or not, which is uh, called Queen Mab. That's bloody brilliant. I mean, it, what's nice for me is I'm 59 years old and I can still say the last thing I put out is the best thing I've ever done, which is good. So I'm still growing, I'm learning, I'm improving, you know, all that kind of stuff. So for me, you know, music is, uh, she's a bitch, but I love her. <laughs> <laughs> you have that connection with Paul in the sense that you're both continually looking forward, continually yeah. looking towards what's next. And, and even in lockdown, Paul had released on Sunset and there's a brand new album that comes out this May. You're constantly looking forward to the next thing as well by the sounds of things. That's really, yeah, yeah. And really not looking at the past at all until, until I do an interview with somebody like you and I was like oh yeah I did do that didn't I <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is that seems it goes through my whole life I tend not to spend much time looking backwards I mean I can do that when I'm you know 80 years old and sitting in a chair pissing myself then I can look <laughs> <laughs> for now thrusting forward <laughs> um, Ashley this has been an absolute joy thank you I've got two final questions for you before you go sure. alright so one question you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or the solo years which one were you going to go with you know what I love Wildwood love that song I don't even know what it's about I don't know what the lyrics are but I just like it and like the way it sounds and, and all that it's really weird as a songwriter I never listen to lyrics usually because I can't hear them uh, but the, but there you go. So that one I, I, I like a lot. It's a really beautiful song. Second question. The whole point of this podcast is to be able to end the series with a meeting with Paul at Black Barn Studios to be able to talk about his life, his career. The interview that I never managed to get in when I was a radio presenter and gave that up 10 years ago. What question, what should I ask him? What should I talk about, do you think? I don't know, but you could probably score a couple of points if you compared him to somebody like Miles Davis, um, which he might hate because that's jazz, but I don't think anybody really hates jazz. That's just opposed. But that thing of always looking, always wanting to stretch out a little bit, it's not rare, but it is rare to do it successfully. Um, I know that's not a question, but that is definitely a talking point. Mm. He has the the musical and the intellectual and the emotional 
resources to continue to grow and expand as a musician. That's noteworthy and rare. The Miles Davis thing is interesting as well, because I think I'm right in saying he would often have a nucleus of a band for two, three years, and then almost break up that unit to move to just continually keep pushing forward, which is very similar to how Paul's worked. Yeah, exactly. You know, as odious as that comparison might be uh, for some people, it's actually accurate. And I've had my musical career has gone the same way without the massive worldwide success, obviously. But I also don't stand still very long. You know, I'm, I'm, that was fun. Okay, next. We'll do something else. But it keeps you interested. It's a two-way street. You know, you have to do it to stay interested and you do it because you're interested. There you go. My famous wise last words. This has been lovely. Thank you so much for letting me into your home to chat. I've enjoyed every second of it. Thank you for your time and all the best for the future, my friend. Well, thank you so much for asking and and I wish you the very best too. That was so good. My thanks to Ashley Slater once again and he'll now wear that honorary councillor badge with honour. And don't forget to keep an eye out for Freak Power back on the road later in 2021. Next up, it's the last of our seven podcasts in seven days and we're joined by the fabulous animal nightlife saxophonist Billy Chapman. Now, not only did Paul Weller love that band, but he invited Billy to play with the Star Council in the early 80s, both on record and live in concert. Don't forget to share the episode on social media. And if you're loving what we're doing, then please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. You can find us on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Facebook and Instagram. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.